You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week's guest is professional hacker Eric Escobar. For the first part, listen to last week's episode. In this week's episode, part two, we discuss hacking back. For example, computers inside RAN's atomic laboratories were made to blast out the ACDC song Thunderstruck. Hacking culture and the hacker fest in the desert that is DEFCON. The tools of the hacker trade, such as a top-of-the-line graphics card. And how hacker talent is spread across the public and private spheres. If you're a fan of the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to check out this week's show notes for resources to learn more. You'll also find a full transcript there. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's show. You're like this affable guy living in central California uh, who obviously enjoys what he does. Like, How much do you get a sense of butting up against the darkness, so to speak? Because there's malicious people out there that want to harm individuals physically, materially, emotionally, and so forth. I mean, how much are the people that are doing the Lord's work like you? Are there people out there trying to stop you or trying to mess with... We don't need to use you as a specific example, but <laughs> people that are people that are trying to like mess with you or get you to stop what you're doing or to dissuade you or disincentivize you or are you kind of seen as a civilian and you're part of the game and therefore you're out of bounds or something? Yeah, so I mean, we are targets just like you are a target, just like pretty much any is a target. You know, there might be a little bit more of a target painted on our back by the sheer fact of this is what we do. You know, and maybe we have some special tooling that that a threat actor potentially wants to to get at or access. But but really, at the end of the day, like there's no like honor among thieves, right? Like I don't get us a, a pass because they're like, oh, we can't attack Eric's machine or Eric's network because it's Eric. Typically, when I say that that hackers are lazy and opportunistic, if somebody if you're not a direct target yourself, 
you are just a line in a spreadsheet, you know, that, that they're trying to, you know, a password spray attack or they're trying typically threat, you know, uh, attackers, threat actors aren't going to target you or somebody or somebody like me specifically, unless they have a really good reason or there's going to be a huge payout at the end of it. Right. If you knew that I was sitting on a hundred Bitcoin, you know, then am I going to be more of a target? Absolutely. Um, but, but really like for me being in the industry, I'm definitely not well, well enough known. And I'm like, okay, cool. You're going to break into my office and steal a bunch of, you know, USB cables. My wife would thank you for that. Um, <laughs> you know, good luck. <laughs> um, and, and the other thing too about, about that too is, is yeah, the threat actors, the attackers, they need to pay off and, and really attacking me. Um, that doesn't get them a ton of, a ton of, um, you know, juice that doesn't, you know, maybe they get some access to like the current report that I'm working on, but past that, um, you know, if they were able to try and compromise me, then they should just go compromise the company that I'm trying to compromise. So I'm never really that worried about it. I do sometimes feel bad, uh, you know, if, if I'm like, say, doing a test and there's a system administrator that's clearly overworked and, you know, and and doesn't have enough hours in the day to do all the things to, to try and keep somebody like me out. Those are those are the the clients that I'm like, look, when I when I'm breaking into you, don't think of me as like an actual adversary. Think of me as somebody who's going to write the report that's saying all the things that you've said this entire time. Like, hey, Jim from IT, look, he wants to implement MFA, and I you you know I I bypassed you know, if that MFA multi-factor authentication had been in place, that would have stopped me. He wants complicated passwords. You should let him roll out complicated passwords because I was able to break in using weak passwords. Um, and so those are the ones where it's like, look, I'm trying. You know, I can sleep easy at night because I know, hey, I'm trying to make the world a better place. All the companies that I break into are often all the places that I myself use. And I've broken into my mortgage company before, which is kind of funny. I said, like, hey, if I break in, can I pay off my mortgage? And, you know, everybody like nervously <laughs> chuckles and they're like, ah, no, <laughs> you know, but um, ho- hopefully that answers your question. But, yeah, I don't think I'm any more mm. of a target. And I think when, you know, when an actual you know threat or adversary is going after you, it has to there has to be a big payoff because um, typically nobody's going to waste their time uh, on somebody just like me. You know, like in the world of intelligence where you have people that are working for one side or people that are working for another side and then you have people in the middle that are double agents or that are agents of an adversary and so forth. So the question I have is, has that ever been the case in the professional hacker community? Like, has there ever been someone that's, I'm a professional hacker, I'm on the up and up, I work for a company that's trying to protect other companies but actually, I'm a I'm a secret scumbag who's selling information or, or doing stuff for the other side, or or vice versa. Is there somebody that's pretended to be a, a nefarious hacker, but actually they've been working for the good guys the whole time? Yeah, help us understand that gray area in between. Yeah, so uh, I don't know anybody personally, and obvi- obviously, I don't know anybody personally that's done that. Um, but there are there are. I, I'm sure that of of the world's most elite hackers of the you know adversarial APT crews that are out there, the advanced persistent threats, um, for all of the you know crazy bad criminals in those groups, I would say probably ninety percent of them hold standard respectable jobs in you know either some intelligence capacity, in some large tech company capacity, or in some technical capacity. Um, because why not? If you're good at that, you know it could just be hey, this is what I'm going to do at night. Um, some of them are, you know, hey, we work for this intelligence agency and that's it. Um, but yeah, th- I mean, there are several, there are several cases, you know, if you were to just go like look this up online 
where uh, you know users are basically said, "Hey, I'm just going to come in and plug in this thumb drive." There's a very famous um, uh, thing that happened recently. There's a company called Ubiquity Networks. They make a ton of you know networking equipment out there, and they had a system administrator that went home, got on the VPN, logged in with a set of credentials that he knew about that he had compromised in his role as a system administrator, and then was able to hold hostage his company. And so, from that perspective. You know, he was the bad nefarious threat actor, but he was the system administrator of the company that he was a threat actor for. And so he tried to ransom them for, I think it was like $5 million or so, some amount of like Bitcoin. Um, and it was just, you know, obviously he didn't do a very good job at covering his tracks because, uh, you know, they caught him. But that's an, 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 a great example of the fact that like he was trying to compromise his own company that he was the system administrator for. And it doesn't get as much, you know, double agenty as that of, I am acting as a threat actor. And what was even more interesting, and, and I shouldn't say funny because I'm sure Ubiquity lost a lot of money and got a lot of egg on their face. But um, what interesting aspect is he was brought in to do the incident response of the threat actor that he was. Um, and so that's, that's just like one of those real world examples of like, yep, that was a double agent. That was a double agent that was working to catch the double agent that he was the double agent of. And I'm sure it happens. You know, obviously I don't have... Uh, <laughs> a ton of knowledge about what happens in the inner workings of intelligence agencies, but that would not surprise me in the slightest to, to know that that same thing happens at that level as well. Just thinking about this in terms of the world of intelligence as well, like for you breaking into a company's network, so that's one part of it that's offense for defense. Is there ever a case where not you or someone like you, but would it not make sense to, rather than just help you protect against the next attack, what if I can get into their network, the bad guys network, and figure out what they're doing so that we've nullified the attack before it's even begun? Or or am I just overthinking this? Or is it completely different in the world of cyber from... You are not overthinking it at all. So that's, that's I think the typical term for that is called hacking back, right? Like, hey, if I hack you first, like offensive hacking into that. Um, and yeah, intelligence agencies, you know, not just ours, but all of them all try and do that to some degree of, hey, if I can figure out what they're doing and I know what they're thinking and I know what their tooling looks like, you know, what can I do from there? You know, what what is uh, their... The hard part when it comes to the cyber domain is that's easy when you're like, that's easy in like terrestrial, like normal warfare where you're like, hey, I saw this soldier go into this barracks, so I'm going to go follow him and try and get intelligence from there. But in the cyber domain, you could be attacking a machine that doesn't even know that it's compromised. So, for example, what, what might happen is if, if, say, you're a nation state and you want to try and, you know, kind of cover your tracks, you might compromise, say, a small flag company and then use the server that you compromise from there to then perform all of your attacks against, you know? And so you can say, Hey, I'm a flag company that's now attacking, you know, this other company. And so the company looks at it and says, Hey, we're being attacked by, you know, this flag company. And so if you were to take the analogy of hacking back, well, now you're that company, you potentially be hacking into somebody that doesn't even know that they're already compromised. So there's a lot of weird attribution at play that you can say, you know, that if you're not a hundred percent sure, then you know, especially especially if you're just a standard person like me hacking any machine that you don't have explicit permission to hack is a felony. Um, and so if you're not explicitly sure that you know that that machine is doing something nefarious, you shouldn't do it. And, and if you're a mili- if you're in the military or intelligence agency, you have, you play by a different set of rules. But even then, you might be hacking into say uh, a company that has been compromised, and 
maybe now the exploit that you used to get into that network, now that now that foreign intelligence company is going to say, oh, this is the tool that they used to do that. This is how they did it. So let's copy that now. So it, it's, you know, the the whole like Soviet era, Cold War era of, you know, spy versus spy. That game is so much at play in cyberspace that it, you know, it's only now it's, you know, there's not, you know, cold clandestine, uh, you know, underneath park benches, you know, kind of a thing when it comes to that level of cybersecurity. I mean, that still might be a thing, but when it comes to the cyber realm, uh, it's even it's even harder because, you know, you can travel around the world in a couple microseconds trying to access servers and, and do all this different stuff. So, um, so yeah, ha- hacking back is definitely a thing. There have been several well-documented cases where U- United States intelligence agencies have hacked back. Um, you know, if you look at, I, I don't know if United States has been actually U.S. or Israel, some intelligence agency basically uh, took over um, another intelligence agency or, um, hold on, I'm going to find you the exact story because it's really great. They played Thunderstruck across all oh, of the computers. ACDC? Wow. Yeah, they awesome. played. So they, good uh, choice. Yeah, so hold on, <laughs> let me find it exactly for you because the story is just too good. It's like hacker gold. So I, they took over the Iranian scientist computer network and on all of their machines, they played Thunderstruck as their computers were all completely locked out. <laughs> wow. Which is, I mean, like if that, like that's like hacker movie fodder, right? Like that is like legitimate, like <laughs> really real is. world, like. Um, but yeah, so hacking back is is definitely a thing. Um, the legality of it is questionable at best, and the ethics of it, um, if you're an intelligence agency that has permission to do it, are you know you you really have to know and you have to really be able to feel confident that you are truly hacking back because that could backfire in many different ways. Um, yeah, so. It, it, that could be a whole subject of an entire podcast of all the clandestine <laughs> <Place> operation, <laughs> operations and the ethics behind it. And should you do it? And what are the ramifications if you do it and you get it wrong? Um, there's there's tons of wild stuff that can happen. And and for that hacking back, that, that brings me on to the next question that I was going to ask. It seems to me that in former eras, the expertise for a lot of these types of information operations or the protection of information or the attacking of information, a lot of the expertise was with governments. So if we think back in World War II, the leading cryptographers were not working for, you know, (laughs) uh, Kraft Foods or something like that. You know, all the leading cryptographers worked for the government. But it, it seems to me that with, in the modern era, it doesn't necessarily follow the best hackers or the leading hackers all work for the government. So I just wondered if you could help us understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of those things that I would be shocked if, uh, you know, all the members on our team haven't at one point or another been asked to work for a three-letter agency. And there's a lot of reasons that a lot of people wouldn't work for an intelligence agency or a government and, and part of them, you know, who knows, might come down to ethics, might come to like their thoughts and views on things. But realistically, like I am talking to you from my office right now and it is 10 feet away from, you know, my kitchen. And so I like that aspect of it. And um, and so when you look, when you say like, oh, the, the world's best hackers, you know, they work for private industry. I'd say it's probably a mix. I don't think that, you know, Google has, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, you know, any of these large tech companies that they have any like like they're not way ahead as far as you know their technical prowess um but yeah it's definitely one of those things that if you want to have a uh, potentially you know more capital coming in if you want to make more money if you want to make a name for yourself 
you know, there's a lot to be said for going and working for a large tech company because you can actually talk about what you do. Because if you work for the NSA, CIA, pick your three-letter agency, and you do something super, super cool, you'll never be able to tell anybody about it, right? Um, And you might go to work for somewhere and they'll say like, hey, what's this blank spot in your resume? Um, And typically there's a pretty big back and forth when it comes to private sector talking to the governmental sector. Um, and you see that in all walks of military and, and you know, all, you know, that different life, you know, anywhere from look at Boeing and Raytheon, um, you know, contributing, uh, you know, information technology and tools to the governmental sector, right? Like the, the, the only buyer source of that. And, and I'd say, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things that the world's best cryptographers don't all work for the government. The world's best hackers don't all work for the government. There are some exceptional hackers that work for the government, um, but I think I think it's pretty well spread back and forth between the private sector and the public sector for for a variety of reasons. And I think everybody has their own reasons for where they end up. But uh, but yes, you know, it could just be as simple as like, yeah, I don't want to have to go move to Virginia, um, you know, to be close to the Pentagon. Right. I don't want to have to live in Alexandria to live close to the Pentagon. I'd rather live in Cowtown, Fresno, California, um, you know, and hang out <laughs> with my family here. So. Um, there's a lot of different reasons, um, but yeah, it is definitely the case that it is no longer where where all the best work for the government. Um, it's definitely spread across. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. I wasn't trying to disparage the people that work for the government. I was more just trying to say that it's, it seems to me that it's more distributed now rather than yes, it is no, and rather I, than I, I concentrated not, I in one place. But but no, you're you're but absolutely yeah. right. It is uh, it is not concentrated, and and honestly, I think that's really good that it's not concentrated. I I really like the the thought and ability to that anybody in my position could potentially go work in the private sector. We go work in the public sector, and that there's even you know back and forth and cross-pollination between those two different sectors to be able to, you know, potentially piggyback back and forth. Tell us a little bit more about DEF CON, Eric. So DEF CON 23, 24 and 25 on the wireless capture the flag winning team, uh, snagging a black badge along the way. Break that down for some of our listeners that, that aren't involved in this world. So start off with DEF CON. So DEF CON's a hacking conference that takes place every year in Las Vegas. Yeah, so DEFCON is the, I think it's the world's largest hacker conference, because I think this last year was something like 30,000 people, uh, you know, go hang out at three casinos in Las Vegas for a weekend. Um, 
And there's, you know, they have, DEF CON is broken out into uh, what's called villages. So, and you can think of those areas of specialty. So there might be a lock picking village where there's just a bunch of padlocks, a bunch of like, you know, uh, people trying to basically break into locks, all, all different sorts, right? I happen to have an expertise in wireless. Um, so I'm, I'm part of the wireless village. Um, and before that, the wireless village would put on a competition. There's, and there's tons and dozens and dozens of competitions at, at DEF CON. Um, but this competition specifically tests, you know, hey, can you compromise wireless networks? Can you breach wireless networks? And you, you, all the contestants have permission to breach the specific networks here. Um, but one of the specific challenges in this is called a fox hunt. And the way the fox hunt works is somebody has a phone in their pocket. Somebody has um, maybe a mobile hotspot in their pocket. And they're walking around all of DEF CON. And so your goal is to find that person, which is labeled the fox. Um, so I happen to be just very good at triangulating, trilaterating, and finding those signals in a sea of, you know, 30,000 people. And so that, and so basically using that, I was able to, uh, you know, it wasn't just me, obviously. It was, it was our entire team that helped win these competitions. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just, it was at first it started off like, hey, this would be a really fun thing just to try and find these foxes at DEF CON. And then it was like, wow. We found all the foxes and we got a lot of points. We could win this thing. Let's do some other challenges to get more points on the board. And so that, that's really how it started. And yeah, it just comes down to, you know, taking, taking a problem, you know, and uh, breaking it down, seeing what your limitations are and, you know, trying to get to that crown jewels. Uh, but yeah, it's mostly it's just a ton of fun. Um, and I, I love that aspect. It's, it's also called a uh, hacker summer camp. So, you know, everybody flies in from their spot in the world and you hang out for a couple of days Um you know, hang out in the desert, hang out, you know, in Las Vegas. And it's, it's always just fun to see everybody because I work remotely. Almost all my coworkers work completely remotely. So it's a good time for everybody to kind of congregate and meet up in person. And what's a black badge? So sometimes competitions are, you know, if, if the competition is deemed rigorous enough by the, uh, um, by the DEF CON, um, what's called like DEF CON leadership, it will get a assigned a black badge. So if you win an event that is a black badge event, um, and they're not always all black badge events. There's the changes, which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, basically, if you win that competition that year, you get what's called the, the black badge. And that basically gets you uh, a free ticket into DEF CON every year. Um, and it was kind of an accident, actually, how the DEF CON black badge became a thing in and of itself. It was meant to just give you a free ticket for the next year when it initially was created. For whatever reason, it got messed up. And they're like, oh, no, you get free access for every year. So how it was initially created 30 years ago is a, a bit of a mistake, I believe. But that's essentially what it gets you now, is it gets you free access um, into, into DEF CON for life, essentially. Um, and it's, it's one of those things, too, that the thing that I really dislike about the Black Badge is there was a lot of people on my team, right? And we won those three years in a row. And uh, I, I don't like the, the idea that, hey, there's one person that, that they get it. I would prefer that it's like, hey, let's, let's split this out and distribute it, right? Um, but yeah, be that as it may, uh, honestly, it's just a lot of fun to be able to hang out with, with all of our friends and, uh, and just be nerds together. Okay. One of the things that I wanted to ask you now was, let's talk Hollywood. Is there a particular hacker movie that, well, let's break it down into two parts. Which one do you think is most realistic? And is there another one that you think, okay, this one's complete hogwash, but it's actually really good fun and a great way to spend a Sunday afternoon with a bag of pretzels and a couple of cold beers? Yeah, so I think, probably on the more accurate end of the spectrum. And to preface everything I'm about to say for everybody that's about to yell at their phone or whatever they're listening <laughs> on. Um, like when you, when 
if you were to look at what I do, you're like, Eric is a hacker. Look at all the things that he do. And it's like, do I have some like Hollywood-esque moments every every now and then? Yeah, I do. But like what they don't see is the 40 hours worth of work that it took to be able to hit enter and watch password scroll on my screen, right? Um, and so hacker movies are all limited by that same thing. So to say that some of them are complete hogwash is is absolutely true because some of them are. But um, but to preface that, I think probably the best the best uh, movie or the, and it's a cult classic is Hackers. Hackers is a great movie. It kind of uh, embodies the hacker ethos of like you know solving problems, doing it on the fly, um, you know trying to work the problem, so to say. Uh, and then more recently, because Hackers is a pretty old movie. Um, uh, the TV show Mr. Robot, they did a pretty good job about doing their research um, about, you know, using the correct terminology. And sure, is it Hollywood? Is it, you know, made for Hollywood? And is it made to tell a narrative and a story? Absolutely. Are they going to explain the intricacies of a buffer overflow exploit? No, they're not. But nobody would watch it if they did. Um, but they use a lot, a lot of, you know, legitimate tools. You know, it's like, oh, hey, I have one of those like sitting right here in my bag of tricks, right? Like, I have that, I have this. Like, um, did they do that a lot faster? Did that work out really easily for him? Absolutely. But um, yeah, I, I think that they that they do a pretty good job as far as keeping it keeping it accurate um and and to the and to the point for Hollywood, so to say. Um, and then I'm trying to think of the one that would be the like, okay, get out of here. Oh, you know what? I think probably Die Hard Five or Die Hard Four. The one with Justin Long where um, where it's like the the very technical diehard one. That one was like, okay, I'll, like you're going to sneak into somebody's house and put like C4 in their computer so that when they type in, you know, something hit enter, then their computer is going to explode. Like, yeah, a, a lot of that is very Hollywood and very like quick hack that street camera. And it's like, what? quick hack that street camera. Like, do we even know what network that's on? Do you have physical access to it? Is it wireless? Like you just said hack it and like it was done. <laughs> you know, so uh, that that one. I mean, it's it's fun. I like it. I like the the Bruce Willis and uh, Justin Long like back and forth of like you know old retired cop and you know like young whiz kid kind of thing. Like that's a a fun aspect of it. But yeah, I think I think the actual technical aspects of it are probably complete garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned tools there. Help us understand some of the tools that you would use or that you use for your job. So other than a computer. Like here at the museum, when we bring up the term cyber, people think, well, it's just, it's so intangible. How do you even tell the story of cyber intelligence, cyber security? But, but then it also makes me think like radio waves are intangible, telegraph uh, messages are intangible, but we still use tools to tell those stories. So if we were doing an exhibition on you, what kind of tools would we use to tell that story? Or hackers in general? Yeah, so so from a digital perspective, the tools are are. I mean, it's kind of funny because you think of a, a like an example of something that I use on a day to day basis, probably for the incorrect purposes that it was originally designed for, is a really hefty graphics card. Like I'm talking the top of the line graphics card that you can you know use to play all your video games on three screens at you know highest graphics uh, enabled. And you're like, well, Eric, how does that help out a hacker? How does that, you know, help out a threat actor? Well, graphics cards um, do a lot of a lot of uh, calculations in parallel. So they can work on uh, similar problems in parallel and do them all very quickly. Whereas typical computer processors, um, you know, they're, re- they're more powerful than some graphics cards can be, but they can only do one after the other, you know, uh, uh, you know, things one after the other. So um, they're just not fast in parallel. 
And so what we use that for is if I get something that's encrypted, a hashed user credential, which is commonly what we get in, um, you know, in, in any of our penetration tests or adversarial engagements. And what we need to do is, well, we need to somehow crack that. Or we need to somehow brute force and find out what the clear text version of that is. And so we use a graphics card to basically just perform trillions of calculations or trillions of guesses a second to see, can we basically brute force that password? Um, you know, something that would have made uh, uh, Alan Turing, you know, envious when he's trying to crack the Enigma code, right? And and so essentially we just say, you know, you could be as simple as, okay, I want to do A, 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 B, A, A, C, A, D, and, and, you know, go through all the various combinations of potential passwords. And if I can do a trillion passwords a second, that's a lot of guesses. And then we apply more, um, you know, like password lists, known passwords, you know, and then uh, say add like 2022 for the year to the end of them to try and tease out what that potential could be. But that's something that that is a tool of mine that I use on a daily basis that was not designed for those purposes. Um, and that's like a digital tool, right? I have other tools. Um, so I'm looking for, for those listening right now, I have other devices that are, are interesting. Um, and again, repurposed. So this device that I'm holding up to the screen, it looks probably about the size of a credit card, maybe five credit cards thick. And there's an RFID reader in here. And so if you're trying to access a badge or gym, a gate, you know, anything, they typically have these little key fobs you touch and, um, you know, it does, it does some mechanism to say, hey, I'm allowed to be here. And, um, and so what this device does is it's still a reader, but it's also a cloner. So it reads it and it saves that code. So now if I'm walking by you in an elevator or an escalator and I were to wand your back pocket, if I were to wand, if it was across your neck, um, I would then have a copy of your key card and I could then replay that and get into the building just as you were. We used this on an engagement a couple of weeks ago and one of my coworkers was able to use this same tool to clone the cleaning lady's badge. And so now we had access to the entire building because the cleaning staff needs access to the entire building, but we had cloned her badge. We didn't steal anything from her. We just made a copy of her, you know, of her RFID badge. And that was it. So that's, that's again, like, a, this is a very technical tool for a very specific purpose. Um, but, you know, I use things that, that run the gamut of a graphics card that you can buy from Best Buy, um, all the way to something that has to be purpose-built and purpose-made and sometimes even just made in-house to achieve that exact objective. Um, but I have, I mean, you can see, uh, for those of you listening to audio, my office is just littered in boxes that all have labels on them. And in each of these boxes is a tool that I use to do my job, whether it's from a specialized USB cable or, uh, you know, a special, so I'm a, I'm a wireless nerd, so I have all my ham radio equipment, all my antenna tuners, all, all of that information, all again, um, you know, to, to potentially try and compromise uh, a client or a customer through um, any number of ways or techniques. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. 
With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. That's pretty incredible. I didn't realize that so much tools were involved. I think that, feel free to decline this question, but I'm assuming that if you wanted to, you know my name, um, you could probably like get into my computer, rake around my files and, 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 and let's not make it me. Could you meet one of your friends or meet someone and just be like, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it because, you know, it wouldn't be ethical. But if I wanted to, theoretically, I could definitely do it. Assuming that like just your average private citizen would be small potatoes. You would think that, but the answer is surprisingly that to try and compromise you or like somebody off the street might oftentimes be way more difficult than a large company. And if you think about it, like if you have a phone, well, you're holding on to that phone, right? So I need to maybe interact with it somehow. I have to get within proximity of you. You're moving, you know, your your house is, you know, uh, a standard, you know, house, so to say. Um, and so your your attack surface is not really that big. You know, you only have a couple devices to go after. Um, and, you know, typically phones are pretty, pretty you know, secure, um, depending on how old it is. Whereas if you look at it like a large company, if you look at like a Fortune 500 company, they might have 40,000 employees. And there's no way humanly possible that they could potentially guard against every known threat actor. Or, you know, they, if they have 40,000 employees, then at minimum, they have to have 40,000 computers. And so it's it's at scale that things get difficult to defend against. You know, if I asked you, hey, you know, you have a, a BB gun and you're going to try and defend your house, you're going to do a really good job of defending just your house because you know everything about it. You know where everything is. Um, you're familiar with it. Whereas if I hand you, you know, a bazooka and say, okay, now go defend Giant Stadium in San Francisco. Okay, I mean, you have big, you have, you have the big guns, but like, there's so much surface area and there's so many places that somebody could hide that typically compromising a, a company is often a lot easier than compromising an individual. There Now, there are certain things that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that would be fairly easy. But but overall, if you keep your computer up to date, you have long passwords, you have multi-factor authentication, you know, which is where you get a text message or you push a code on your phone to log into something. Um, you know, you use encryption on everything. You know, you have a pin on your phone and a password on your computer you are going to be a lot more difficult to compromise than probably the top Fortune 500 companies out there just because the nature of, of you know, there's only so many devices, you need physical access or, you know, relative access to it. Um, and especially if you use a tool, if you use email services like Gmail or Outlook or, you know, any of the big ones out there, they're really good. They see attacks at scale. And so the amount of email that potentially gets filtered out, scams that get filtered out, like, Trying to send uh, a malicious email, a malicious phishing email, is really hard if you're doing it through Gmail, through Office 365, through any of these suites of tools, which would probably be the main way that I would try and compromise. Totally not Andrew, but um, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, <laughs> hacking an individual is is often hard. Whereas for a company, I only need to hack one of forty thousand computers, one of forty thousand employees, in order to get my way in the door. So, um, so yeah. That's a common question that I get. They're like, okay, well, hack my phone right now. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not going to do this right now. I, I used to volunteer at a youth group and all the kids would be like, can you get me, 
you know, more gold in Warcraft. Can you get me, uh, you know, it's like, no, that's not, that's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite interesting, the attack surface. So your average private citizen is just presenting a much narrower front, so they're more difficult to attack. So does that reverse the old adage that if you try to defend everything, you defend nothing? Because if you're a Fortune 500 company, unless you defend everything, you're not defending anything. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Does that because make sense? It, it does make sense. And it, it's honestly just, it's a really hard problem. Like, it's a really hard problem because, you know, I, what I always like to tell our clients and my family is they're like, well, I want my computer to be as secure. I want my network to be the most secure network. And it's like, okay, if you had me design your network and your only goal was to make it secure, unplug everything from power, turn it all completely off and unplug it from the, and they're like, well, that's not practical. I'm like, okay, so you don't want the most secure network. You want a network that is secure, but also usable. Um, and so in that regard, you know, I, I take sympathy from the aspect of like, yeah, it's really tough to keep everything updated. And if you're running a large company and you're a staff of five people and you have tens of thousands of computers to look after, there's just not enough hours in the day to do it. Um, and that's typically why things happen. Or, um, you know, if, if say an employee left and their job duties weren't picked up by somebody else and that machine just went by the wayside because the person who was hired to, you know, keep it patched and keep it, you know, secure is no longer there at the company anymore. And so it just gets left alone and nobody knows that it's there. It's really that problem of knowing what, knowing what your assets are, knowing, um, what devices are actually even in your network. Because if you, like, if I asked you right now, Andrew, name the number of devices currently connected to your Wi-Fi. It's, it's not like 23, right? You don't know immediately. You have to think about it. Well, that's just you. That's just one person. Now think you're a company and you have, and you know, you have to try and take into account all of these devices. And to make matters even worse, sometimes it's people logging in from their personal cell phone into their email, into their VPN, into their whatever it might be, which is convenient from cost savings for the company. But as far as security, it's a nightmare because it's hundreds of different random devices that you have no control over that you have to provide support and security to. So it's like, I, I do not envy that problem because it's a tough nut to crack. Um, and that's why people are employed with it. And there's large, large security teams out there because it's it's really hard to keep the wheel, it's essentially trying to change the wheel on the bus while the bus is driving down the highway. It's, you know, you can't have any downtime, but everything needs to be secure, but nobody wants to reboot their computer for updates. Um, and so it's, mm -hmm. it's a tough problem. Um, hopefully that wow. answered your question, but yeah, I, I have no envy for the people that do that job there. <laughs> they are <laughs> they are doing the hard work. Just a couple of final questions, Eric. Have you ever struggled or have you ever failed or struggled to get into a network? Oh yeah, there's there's been more than more than my fair share of networks that I'm like, wow, you guys just did a really good job against this. Um one of the ones that that sticks out in my mind is um so when you're trying to you're trying to like compromise a network or you're trying to compromise a company. Um, one of the things that you try and do is you try and just do password guesses. Like, hey, is Andrew's password summer 2022? Maybe it is. Odds are that if you have, uh, you know, a thousand users, one of them is going to have the password summer 2022. So that's why I try it. And what they did, and I thought it was really clever, is they had uh, a bunch of um, like famous movie stars in their in their like accounts. And so like there's Tom Cruise and John Travolta and all these, you know, uh, famous actors and when you try and log in as John Travolta or as Tom Cruise, it throws up all the red flags because they're not real users. So nobody should be trying to log in as them. 
And so immediately I was caught. Immediately I was quarantined and evicted from the network. And it's just little stuff like that. I'm like, that was clever. I always got to watch for that now. So now I have like, I compare my list of users on their network to IMDB to see, you know, what famous actors or famous people are included in there. Um, but again, just one of those things that like, yep, that that kept me out pretty darn well, because uh, if you have a thousand users, you know, it takes you a lot of time to slog through that and see, you know, man, there's a there's you know nothing I could do to, to find out who they were ahead of time. Other things that that have kept me out, honestly, just. Uh, companies have really good password policies, um, you know, where it's just a 15 character password. You got to use a sentence and they, uh, you know, require multi-factor authentication for everything. That's really, really solid. Like it's really hard to try and guess a password when it's 15 characters long. Um, and it's really, really hard to try. And, uh, you know, even if I have a password, if you have a cell phone that I need to have, or if you have a code or a token or something else in addition to your username and password, it makes it really hard for somebody like me to break into your account because I don't have those things. Right. Um, so that, that makes it, that makes it tough. Um, but yeah, more often than not, I'm successful at, at achieving some level of the objective, but there are definitely companies that, that I haven't been able to breach. But the other thing that I always like, like to remind our clients of, of like, look, you have, uh, you know, an adversary, a threat actor trying to attack you for a week. If I'm if I'm a true nation state, if I'm a true adversary, I might just slowly try and breach your network over the course of weeks, months, and and sometimes even years, right? Um, and so that's the other thing to keep in mind too that I always tell our clients is like, look, just because I wasn't able to get in doesn't mean that no one is able to get in. I had 40 hours. Some well-staffed and well-resourced, um, you know, threat actors. If they really want to get into you, um, you know, they they have a lot more time on their hands to potentially breach your network. Just thinking about cryptography during the Second World War, like to get into Enigma, that was a almost an industrial scale operation. So I think that that's, that's quite an interesting point because I can't do it in 40 hours. Doesn't mean that 4,000 people in you know, four years won't, won't be able to do it. If you could recommend one book for people to learn about hacking, what would you recommend? Honestly, I feel like so there's a book, and this might be a weird choice, but it's a book that I always reference, and it's called The Hashcat Manual. And basically what The Hashcat Manual is, is it is a book that's maybe maybe 100 pages long, and it's like maybe $10 on Amazon. And what it does is it has all the known types of hashes and encryption functions, and basically, you have a, say you have the word password, how do you mangle that? How do you encrypt that? How are the processes that that it's done to encrypt and secure that? And it's not like a, this is how you get started hacking, but it just shows you all the different methods that super, super smart cryptographers and people have come up with to secure and safeguard clear text information. Um, and so while it's not like a, this is a get starting guide on how to start hacking, you know, hacking for dummies, I just appreciate it and I like it from the sheer fact that it is something that I, I reference quite often um, and it is something that that just goes to show that there are so many different ways to solve a problem. Wow, this has been so fascinating, Eric. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I feel like I could speak for another oh, we hour could and a half. Talk a long but, time. <laughs> but <laughs> to be continued, maybe at DEFCON next year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you ever so much. Um, and the final question was, what does your t the letters on your T-shirt mean? It's not just a random shirt that I got at a, at a conference oh, okay. at some point. <laughs> it I doesn't thought mean there was anything. some deeper significance. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, th thank you so much. This has, been, this has been fantastic. 
thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.